Hi, everyone. I imagine your summer is going as quickly as mine is. It's amazing how so much gets packed into such a short amount of time. And I'm somebody who tries to slow things down and and be as present as possible. And yet there's still so much, you know, activity and, and joyful occasions and people visiting and all the rest of it. But um, I hope you're having a beautiful July. I hope you are having some time not only to enjoy others and the season, but also to just have some time to be. That's so essential. In fact, today as I record this, I I wanted to get behind the mic and I, I have it fully ready to go, but I just needed to be a little bit before I sat down because I just felt like I'd been racing a bit and it's just not fair to what I put out and it's not fair to me to feel like I'm racing. So I just took a little time and puttered around and uh, watched a video I had been wanting to make some time for and I feel much I feel much fuller here as I chat with you now. So best to you all. And we are certainly in the moon cycle and phase of the thunder moon. Indeed, this last week of July is in the waning phase and, and a new moon will start right at the end of the month. But I'd like to share what I wrote about the thunder full moon and the thunder waning moon. And this piece that I wrote regarding the full moon um, was inspired by, I don't know if you've seen it, but there is a film that came out in the early 80s called The Man from Snowy River. And I'm guessing many of you have seen it. It was such a beautiful film and I, I watched it over and over again. And I still love to see it on occasion or certain, you know, of my favorite parts of it. And and one of those parts, um, if for those of you unfamiliar with the film, it's about a young man in Australia who is out to prove himself. And he is a really gifted rider, horseback. And of course, he falls in love with the rancher, the wealthy rancher's daughter. The wealthy rancher is played by Kirk Douglas, and he has this big Australian station. And of course, everybody treats Tom Burlinson, that's the actor's character, Jim Craig, very poorly, and he has to earn his way. And so it's definitely a coming of age, coming of self sort of film. But it's so beautifully done. And the wild horses are called the Brumbies in this film. And there's this legacy and myth sort of woven into the characters' stories about some tragedy that had happened in the past regarding some of the wild Brumbies and relatives of Jim Craig's. So he's sort of on this crash course also with this mob of horses. And that's kind of a subplot, which is a really beautiful part of the narrative. And I had written this because thunder just seemed so fitting because of thinking of these magnificent animals, wild and free and just running and racing. And so this is what I wrote 
Thunder of hooves, hot pursuit mob of brumbies, lead stallion black as the void, wild and suffering. Shakespearean pause, at one with the mount, set matters square, meet the shadow, release a destiny, commit, leap to the unknown, cry out, authenticity, the presence of a horse, of thunder and calm. I have spent some time in the presence of horses in my first marriage. My husband was and remains a gifted rider as well. And I had the great honor of being around horses more. I was not a rider myself. I mean, of course I did ride, but it was never a natural thing for me. Um, it is for my daughter, and I'm so happy that she had that from being a little girl. It was a comfort and a, a confidence that she had from being little growing up with them. Um, it's not something that I acquired. I was still, you know, sort of in awe of their power and a little bit intimidated, I would definitely say. But regardless, it was an enormous privilege to be in their company and be in their presence. And I have such respect for their power and also their incredible gentleness. And I, I like that this poem sort of goes there in terms of the thunder and the calm. And horses are so forgiving for all the dumb quackery that goes into riding them sometimes. People are complete fools on them and they're, you know, spurring them and different things. And just, it breaks my heart on one level that so many people don't know how to ride or ride well or ride effectively. And they just take out all their fear and aggression on the animal. And horses still forgive us and they... They allow us to find our own redemption and, and give us another chance. And so it, it's just this really incredible juxtaposition of this moon of this month of July being so powerful and full of thunder. And indeed, we've had some amazing thunder in the last few weeks in our rainstorms here, which I've loved so much. My daughter and I went out on our front porch and just sat at night and just watched the lightning and just reveled in the thunder. It was magnificent. I love that. I'm welcoming more. But this this sensibility of the horse in with that just seemed really appropriate and fitting. And then what I wrote about the waning moon, which we are in right now, I wrote, integrate the thunder, integrate the space between, integrate the voice, integrate the hush, integrate the felt presence, integrate the need for nothing at all. And that's a perfect segue into what we're going to be talking about today, this idea of integration. And, and indeed, as I, as I move more in my own walk 
definitely leaning into the unknown. I'm slightly shifting word from integrate to revelation. And and what I mean by that is as somebody who loves depth psychology, who has studied a lot of C.G. Jung, and then as you know, if you've been following my podcast recently, Peter Kingsley, there's so much there. There's so much rich material about the hero's journey, about the path of individuation, about becoming our own unfiltered divine selves. And I'm seeing that more now as a revelation of what's already there and just sort of taking these layers, allowing these layers to fall away as opposed to integrating. So anyway, it's it's kind of a small point, but Anyway, I might say if I were to write that poem again, you know, the revelation of thunder, the revelation of the space between, of the voice, of the hush, of the felt presence, of the need for nothing at all. I'm liking this idea of of revelation because it is always there when we get out of our own ways. Those most precious and beautiful and powerful qualities, most loving qualities, they're there. They're there right now. Wherever you find yourself right now, it's right there with you. It's right here with me. So it's not, I think this idea of integration, although it also is a productive word, maybe that's what I'm resisting a bit, is there's some effort implied in that. And and as I've been very honest about saying many times in the podcast, it does take a singular focus to get out of the mind's destructive impulses. You know, it does take some effort um, in terms of a focus, but I really like setting aside the idea of working and efforting because what is there and what is revealing itself is very natural. And I prefer now to reinforce the idea that our natural state is just there and wanting to be joyful and loving and shine. And so I'm setting this idea of effort aside because it it wants to snag in my own head about being perfect. <laughs> and that's not helpful. <laughs> so anyway... Those are my thoughts on the thunder moon as it winds down now. And we'll have another beautiful moon to talk about soon. But let me tell you what happened. Um, This past week, I have uh, my dear friend Zach Kempf, who you have heard on the podcast because I interviewed him a while back. And I've also interviewed his amazing wife a while back, Kelsey Reap. Anyway, Zach had reached out a while ago to see if I would lead his Jung meetup group this past Thursday, which I was delighted to do. And we met and Zach just let me have free reign on the topic. But I, you know, I texted him a bit. I'm like, well, is there anything in particular that would be, you know, of the moment and And he and I have talked a bit about Peter Kingsley's work. And he's like, you know, that would be a good topic if you want, but whatever's on your heart. And I said, that is definitely on my heart. So we went for that and fashioned that meeting around Peter Kingsley's work, its intersection with 
C.G. Jung's work, and particularly the idea of prophecy, of prophecy. So that's what I'm bringing to you today. And it's going to take two parts because there's a lot of material. And that's perfect because, you know, I post two of these a month most times. And um, this will be a great full two-part episode for this topic of Peter Kingsley, Jung, and prophecy. And let me tell you just a bit what happened at the meeting. I have all this material prepared. It was going to be an hour and a half discussion. And I enjoyed getting the materials ready, you know, again, teaching what I need to learn. Um, And I felt confident that I had a good a good hour's worth of material for sure to cover and then leave time for questions. But we didn't even begin to get through the amount of material I had. And that was just as it was supposed to be. I really try in those moments of teaching, just as here on the podcast, to let whatever's wanting to be known just find its way to the mic or to the room or whatever and not over plan. So I'm prepared, but not trying to control it. Okay, I'm, I'm really leaning into that and getting more comfortable with that all the time. But we didn't even scratch the surface. And I met some lovely people, have already connected with some of those folks. And they may even be listening to the podcast now, which I'm so delighted to have folks along for the ride because this is such great material. And I think it matters tremendously in the very turbulent times we find ourselves in. And there's just no lying about how turbulent they really are. That doesn't mean I'm feeding into the fear of it at all. But it's good to be clear-eyed about what's happening in the collective culture and in the collective consciousness so that we can have our own conscious as much as possible participation in assisting that not only for our own lives, but to help others and to help that to help that collective vibration be stronger, more peaceful, more centered on true solutions. So anyway, I did not get through the material in any way. <laughs> I mean, we had a great meeting. It was a great meeting. But it, it went the way it went, and, and I just had all this rich material. And I was walking the other night, as I love to do in the evenings here. I walk our puppy in the morning, and then I just walk for my own enjoyment at night. And I thought, well, Lori, you've got the whole podcast set now. Just do what you were going to do in the meetup group for the podcast, because you all have been following along with me anyway on a lot of these principles. So you will hear some repetition if you've been following in mystery school. You'll hear a little bit of repetition, but that's okay because if you're like me, this is this is really dense and I don't mean in in a in a negative sense there, but it's really richly dense material in some ways. So repeating some points here and there is actually helpful to me. So hopefully it will be to you, but I'm basically just over today and the and the second podcast for July, I'm going to give you this talk that I would have given had I had a little more time um, at the meetup group the other night. So this idea of prophecy is really interesting. 
That is a loaded word, isn't it? I mean, I find myself sort of pulling back from it, prophecy, because I like thinking there is free will or there is always an opportunity to course correct, if you will. And so we're just going to hold that idea somewhat loosely (laughs) um, and just sit with the discomfort of that, if that's what's happening with this idea of prophecy. But to speak in broad terms, C.G. Jung often talked about his personality number one and his personality number two. And I have mentioned that before, but I'll repeat this idea again. Personality number one was referring to the roles that he played in his life. You know, he was a pioneer in the field of psychology. And he was a lecturer and he was a prolific writer and he had clients and, you know, he was in analysis with people. Um, He was having extraordinary conversations with many famous uh, writers and thinkers of the time. Just all this correspondence, the amount of writing he did just still, I find so staggering. And of course, he had his own encounter with the unconscious, which was made available, a glimpse of that with the publication of the Red Book just a few years ago. So um, personality number one was his role in life, his, his role as a father, as a psychologist, lecturer, etc. Personality number two is who he knew himself to be when he met the unconscious. So I think it would be fair to say that white lightning encounter with his own divinity And it wasn't just this, oh, happy joy, bells of heaven ringing. I mean, it was terrifying. It was all of the totality of experience. And we're getting into deep, deep mystery here. You know, I I don't think any of us can really say what the unconscious, the subconscious, the unknown is, you know, in with any sort of accuracy with our words anymore. We are leaning into territory that has to be experienced and that is going to be unique for each of us. Having said that, personality number two in Jung's life was that experiential encounter of the divine speaking. And that applies to all of us if you are resonant with this perspective. Okay, this is definitely a perspective that certainly rings true for me, but without trying to step on any of your own spiritual beliefs, you know, this is a perspective. So personality number two would often, quote unquote, say things or not say things that seemed at odds with personality number one. And and those who have studied Jung all these years have commented on how seemingly contradictory he can be. And this is so brilliant to think of this being one of the major reasons why. 
because I know that you know this to be true, that there are very few people, although you may be friendly with many folks and you have different conversations with different people in your life, there are really very few people that we can truly be our authentic selves with. And that is a precious sort of dialogue or exchange to have. And so a lot of times when Jung was talking where there weren't ears to hear personality number two, he was somewhat of a trickster and would be dismissive of more of the mystical or esoteric aspects of his body of work, even dismissive of it, um, only to then, in the presence of somebody who could hear it, you know, flower forth with a beautiful dialogue about it. So um, Henry Corbin is definitely one person who Jung said that he could be his personality number two with and have that sort of exchange with. And so that's a beautiful thing. And we'll we'll touch a bit on that um, towards the end of this two-part exploration of Jung and prophecy. So where does Peter Kingsley fit in with this? Well, as you know from the work we've already done regarding Peter Kingsley, he's a scholar, scholar, Cambridge trained, you know, he, he is hard to dismiss. And yet I would argue that as he has uncovered what he has about the spiritual roots of Western civilization through his work with Parmenides and Empedocles, as we have discussed before, as he has allowed that discovery to do its own work through him and on him and change him and reveal itself through him, he is increasingly concerned only with personality number two as well. Like personality number one is just not as important to talk to talk about and to maintain those roles and identities. It's just not, you know, and I, I'm experiencing that a bit myself that <laughs> with the exception of the fact that I have a podcast, um, I don't talk a lot about these things beyond having a specific invitation to do so. And that's not because I don't want to share. It's just because, A, I often don't have the words. It's very experiential in my life right now. And number two, that invitation sort of has to reveal itself. Like, yeah, this is a great space to share with somebody because... There's a current between the two of us or among, if there are more, among the group of us that is resonant with this right now. And this is not any kind of hierarchical thing at all. We are all in the process of revealing our most precious selves, all of us. And this is where we're all going. All roads lead to Rome. (laughs) And, and so it's, it's not a matter of somebody being better or more conscious. It's just where you find yourself in any particular moment. Um, just knowing that this is all in process with all of us. 
So um, Peter Kingsley then uses the word prophet, and especially in his book, Catafalque, which I have talked a little bit about, but we'll, we'll visit more about. In his book, Catafalque, he's really looking at Jung as a prophet. And, you know, going back to those figures of Empedocles and Parmenides, in that tradition, um, and I would offer how he's defining that, which again is a little bit slippery, but I'll do my best and, and we'll actually read quotes from that here as we move through ma- the material. But I would say he's defining that as those precious few people who have had that white lightning experiential moment with the authentic self, with the divine, however you want to say that, and that it has forever changed them. And therefore they see things differently. They see currents in the culture, everyday events happening in a different way than those who haven't had that experience in that way yet. This is more than a peak experience. I think we've all had beautiful peak experiences where we feel a oneness or a kinship or that beautiful extension of love. Um, But this sort of encounter with the living God, if you will, and I'm using God in in a really large sense because I don't wanna invoke sort of the white bearded man in the sky image for anybody. I'm just talking about source, the absolute, the unknown. Okay, so that's how I'm sort of talking about that that largest experience that we sort of have language for. To have an experiential encounter with that aspect is really life-changing and it changes how then you come back to live fully, to live fully in the earth space and and on the earth walk. Um, But it changes how you go about things. It changes the conversations you have and at what point, like you may really be aware of personality number one and personality number two and when it's going to be received. And you see the signs and you hear the birds and you hear the currents of what's going on in a very different way than you did before. So I'm not really comfortable with saying, this is just me, my, myself speaking right now. I'm not comfortable with saying that anybody can say X, Y, Z is going to happen on such and such a date. I just, that doesn't feel resonant with me at all. Having said that, let's look at this idea of prophet as somebody who has had a direct encounter and is therefore changed because of this encounter with the divine, with the absolute, um, with those energies that we just struggle to even articulate into words. And they're seeing patterns in the culture that they can speak very, very accurately about and in certain moments choose to do so. I would offer that Peter Kingsley's books are in that spirit. 
and yet he is also a self-proclaimed trickster. So some of a quote-unquote prophet's role is to try to wake people up. Think of the role of John the Baptist preceding the Christ figure. He was out trying to wake everybody up, saying that this other figure would would be arriving soon. Okay, so this idea of prophet, I, I want to use as skillfully as I can without saying, oh, <laughs> you know, at such and such a date, this is going to happen. I don't think any of us can say that. It doesn't feel resonant to make any sort of predictions like that. However, I will tell you as we go through this material, what Peter Kingsley is offering. And for those of you less familiar with C.G. Jung, uh, back right before World War II broke out, um, he noticed a lot happening in the dream life of his Anelsans. And so he sort of could see that war was imminent and indeed, it broke out soon thereafter. So, you know, his ability to read signs was greatly heightened for having had his encounter with the unconscious. And that's just to be expected. I mean, that seems really natural, doesn't it? You know, like, my God, if, you know, if you had a little bit of lightning in a bottle moment you're going to think differently and and process differently and be in touch with things differently from that moment forward. Um, I think the same thing is happening in Peter Kingsley's texts. And so to that extent, that's what we're going to be talking about here. And I think a lot of folks, particularly from the scholarship and scholarly and academic traditions really resist calling Jung or even Peter Kingsley for for that matter. They don't like having those figures in some kind of spiritual or esoteric or mystical sense. They want to just make their writings metaphorical or um, explain away those mystical aspects of them, and they want to keep them firmly situated in academia or scholarship. And fair enough. You know, I, I'm not here to tell you to do to do one or the other. I'm just offering what I know is out there, offering what's resonating for me, and certainly acknowledging that people have a really hard time with this idea of profit, and I get that. And Peter Kingsley, in his text, as he's writing about our current state of affairs, as he's talking about the ancient spiritual traditions of Western civilization, as he's talking about C.G. Jung's work, he is very honest about his own inflation, quote-unquote, meaning in the psychological sense, he knows people reading him will accuse him of being inflated, full of himself. He knows that and he calls it out himself. And he calls out that he will be perceived as crazy or insane. He calls it out himself. So for a very scholarly person 
to already call that out for me gives credence to what he's saying because he's like, I know how this sounds. <laughs> I know how this sounds. And I think that's why it could often be argued that Jung just skipped the conversation altogether. And in some instances, quote unquote, played dumb. Although I don't think you could ever talk about Jung as coming off as ignorant in any way, but, you know, certainly would um, dismiss the mystical side of things. And, you know, be where you are with this. That's fine. I'm not trying to encourage one or the other, but just have a really open dialogue about what could be happening here. And it's certainly resonating for me. So with that, um, I would like to just go a little more into their specific ideas and read particularly from their texts themselves so as to allow these two incredible figures to speak for themselves. Um, But with that, I would like to start by just for processing this material, which again is so very richly dense in in its um, wisdom, let's just say that, I would like to describe three categories of people, not because that is fair to put all of humanity into three different groups of people, but I think it's going to help this conversation. And it did help the other night when, when we did this um, at the meetup group. So I want you to imagine just by way of helping us process this conversation, one group of folks that is really identified with their roles and their identities. Not that we all aren't, but I'm going to call this group of people very affectionately plank on head people. (laughs) And what I mean by that is it takes literally a plank on the head for them to sort of pivot or alter their course. They are really invested in being an American or an Italian or, you know, a Democrat or a Republican or whatever, you know, pick your culture, pick your pick your stereotype, pick your identity, pick your role. They're really identified with being mother or father. We all wear these roles, but this group of people has a lot of group think going on, a lot of herd mentality going on. And we have all been there. Okay. This is not a judgment call. We have all, it is my belief, moved through many experiences and lifetimes of, of whether it was in this particular walk or if your belief system allows other lifetimes to figure into that equation, we have all been this densely identified before. Absolutely. So we've all been murder and mayhem, I like to say. We have all been that. So this is not a judgment, but it's where some folks are really comfortable still. Okay, so I'm calling those folks affectionately plank on head because it like literally takes running into a brick wall before they're like, okay, yeah, I need to rethink how I'm living here. The second group I'm calling certified life coach, (laughs) very affectionately. And what's happening there is people have graduated from that first group and they've moved into educating themselves either with some 
popular psychology or, and certainly there's a spectrum. So this certified life coach group, let's call it, um, can be just, you know, folks that read Ann Landers in the 70s and 80s with some new ideas about boundaries and all the rest of it to people who have, you know, scholarly reputations and academic degrees. So I'm calling this middle group the people who are educating themselves, learning how to use the mind more skillfully, and who still have identities as mother, father, American, Irishman, what have you, but they wear those identities lightly, or at least not as as emphatically as, as the previous group. So they can hear other perspectives without sort of losing their mind, right? They can hold that tension without having to feel that it's a threat to them individually. They can sort of be in that, okay, here's a perspective and and here's a different perspective. And I added certified life coach (laughs) to this category, again, somewhat tongue in cheek, because it's still, the ego is still really subtle here. Yes, there may be some, some more sophistication about how to use the mind more effectively, but we still really like our identities. And although it might not be about country or political party, I'm, what I have experienced with folks in this group, myself included, is that we do like our ologies or we like our sophistication and our perspectives. And we feel like we're pretty tied to those. Um, So we like that we have our education and that we're certified in this or that. Um, And that gives us a bit of ego boost and although it has set our mind open in some ways, it's really easy for the ego to come in the back door on that and still sort of stake its claim. So um, there's an enormously broad spectrum of folks in this middle range for sure. And then the third category, just for argument's sake, is what I'm calling just the I am, the I am. And that's for those people who have had an all-out encounter with the unknown, with the divine, however you feel comfortable thinking about that, the unconscious, and it has changed them in a profound way. Um, It has basically blown the doors off of all identities. And those people have come back to live a beautiful life, a rich life, a life full of meaning and very much involved and embracing of this beautiful earth experience, but they're different. They they no longer see themselves as a role, as a nation, as a party, as, as um, an academic discipline or anything. They see themselves as God, goddess, in disguise. And they know that every other person in every other category is that as well. That doesn't mean people are moving from that knowledge themselves. You know, you have to 
meet folks where they're at, but there's an incredible amount of compassion. Um, and they are just in the I am space. That is a really small group of people, I'm guessing, at any given time. Um, but they hold a tremendous amount of power in terms of the good that they're doing in in the earth and on the earth um, just by the, the, the frequency of their consciousness. So these three groups, I, w- I would definitely say people who are talking about having personality number one and personality number two, um, this I am group would definitely be the those who are well aware of their personality number two. So with that, I think that's going to be helpful as we move through this material. And I am leaning on some other um, articles I have found by people who were able to, scholars who were able to summarize some of Peter Kingsley's work really effectively because he's really hard to summarize because he is speaking in trickster fashion. He's speaking in a really intentionally um, circular argument motion so as to allow the wisdom to sort of turn us upside down and and penetrate when we're least expecting it. He's hard to summarize, and and I found a couple of folks out there who had written great articles, and I'm I'm going to lean on them and read directly from them um, to help us navigate some of this material. But I want to start by sharing, uh, start here, I'm 45 minutes into this podcast, but anyway, you know, that's what I tend to do. just know that this material may be provocative, it may be disturbing, it may be unsettling. And just like with anything that we discuss, just we're going to let it be that. Because that's just an identity or a role that we're wanting to hold on to. And we can just set that aside for a bit. Doesn't mean you have to totally align with anything. You know, you're free to make your own decisions, but see what reveals itself to you. And there are two quotes that I find enormously helpful when diving into this material about prophets, quote unquote. One is from W.H. Auden, the poet, and he famously said, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand. We are lived by powers we pretend to understand. I know James Hillman quoted W.H. Auden often with that very, that very powerful phrase. And the next quote is one by Joseph Campbell. And he said, The schizophrenic is drowning in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight. The schizophrenic is drowning in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight. And it is a little crazy to have this conversation about prophets and personality number one and number two. And certainly, certainly, if you have had any experiences with the psychedelic renaissance, you may have had an all-out white lightning encounter with the unconscious yourself and it does change you 
you know, it does change you. And of course, there's all kinds of spectrum experiences within a psychedelic experience as well. You know, I know very little about it other than what I have shared here on the podcast with you. But I know it was transformative what I experienced um, and not saying that all um, experiences are equal in in any way. Um, But that is, I, I only bring that up to reinforce the point that I think we're at a moment in our human evolution where more people are going into this third group of what I'm calling the I am. And it's painful to move to these next categories. It really is. It's usually pain and suffering that drives us there. And my experience has been, you know, let's let's go back to the group that's group think and plank on head. You know, it's usually pain that says, you know, I have to, I have to leave my family of origins way of thinking and, and start getting some education here and, and thinking about different ways. It doesn't have to be a formal education, but just educating myself on how I can use my mind better. And that can be painful because others can say that you think you're too good for them or whatever. Um, some relationships may fall away. Others may deepen. And we find our tribes for sure. What I have found is when you're in a borderland needing to move into the next area, what used to work for you in the previous group doesn't anymore. It just doesn't anymore. And, and being somebody who has loved learning and teaching and academia and scholarship my whole life, and I've been very happy in the certified life coach category of folks. I love books. I love reading. I love learning. Making my living, navigating my relationships, all the things I had originally learned in this time in my experience as Lori Green, those ways started to break down. And it's not because I'm leaving that group or dismissing that group. I'm still very much involved in that group. But I also was beginning to have some experiences with the I am category. And you have to start living differently again. And in that in-between time where the old things that used to work in terms of earning a living or navigating relationship, when those don't work and you have to lean into a new way of doing things, it can be frightening. It can have suffering attached to it for a while, for sure. And it takes a, a tremendous amount of courage. Jung famously said that individuation is not for everybody. And, you know, certainly what he means by that is not everybody is in a moment where all that's going to make sense. And and I know that was so true for me because I went to Pacifica Graduate Institute to learn all about Jung and depth psychology and the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell and myth and story and all the rest of it. And these were beautiful intellectual concepts to me. And that middle group that I'm talking about, certified life coach, is in love with concepts and the intellectual dance of that. 
that third group, the I am group, is all experiential. And becoming the divine in terms of ideas about individuation and the hero's journey as intellectual concepts is very different when it becomes experiential. And you can't sort of mix the two anymore. It blows the doors off of that. So um, that middle group is definitely referenced externally, primarily still. Whereas the I am category is increasingly referenced internally, meaning they're not looking to affect change anymore from the outside in. They are affecting change from the inside out. And most importantly, from the the glorious beingness of knowing that you are a facet of the divine, not more important or less important than anybody else, but the fact that you are aware that that is blossoming in you changes everything. And it changes your life and it changes how you make your living and it changes how you navigate relationships. And it's it's blossoming from the internal sphere being reflected back in the external events of your life. And I think only folks who have spent any sort of concerted time in that third space could ever be called quote unquote prophet. And again, it doesn't mean that they know what's gonna happen to the earth or what's gonna happen in an election or any of that. It just means that they, as I'm defining it, they can read signs in a, in a much more nuanced and accurate way. So with that long introduction, um, I want to share, I'm just going to read straight from this scholar's paper because he does such an amazing job of summarizing the themes that we're going to discuss in this podcast and the next This is a summary of Peter Kingsley's book, Reality, which we have talked about in the past, but I love returning to the ideas again, just from a different person's perspective. And this reviewer's name is Brian Brewer, and he is writing from Brazil, and it's, he does a fantastic job of talking about really difficult material Um, I think he makes it very accessible and he himself is a beautiful writer. So I appreciate the way he talks about this, but this will just get us on the same page again, where we will take this information and start then intersecting. Is Jung a prophet? Is Peter Kingsley a prophet? And what does that mean? And, And why does that matter? So I'm going to read straight from... Brian Brewer's paper right now. Reality by Cambridge-educated scholar and author of international reputation Peter Kingsley is not a work of scholarship in the traditional sense and therefore should not and cannot be treated as so. It is instead an elaborate proof and argument that the standard view on Parmenides, considered the father of logic, and on Empedocles, formative in the development of the fields of philosophy, 
Rhetoric, medicine, chemistry, biology, astronomy, cosmology, and psychology is faulty based on subjective, partial analysis of their extant writings drawn from sometimes poor translations from the Greek, which did not take into account contextual usage of the words chosen by these authors relative to the times in which they wrote. If the polemic generated by this book were only one of philology and interpretation, then perhaps it would be well to compare it to other philosophical studies on these two pre-Socratic greats. But this isn't the case. For beyond questions of interpretation, the author plunges the reader into a well, opening unto the darkest depths of time in an almost never-ending spiral of emotionally charged and cunning rhetoric, which whirls around and round and washes through the short stanzas of two poem fragments, like a vortex bent on cleansing them on the bottom mud of millennia, and blasting away the barnacles and crustacea of misunderstanding and misinterpretation to raise them burnished and gleaming once more to the sunlit surface of the present as a priceless treasure, veritable keys to understanding the cosmos and all things. I'll pause here. The way Brian Brewer has just described, that is how you feel. That's how I felt when I read Peter Kingsley. It is. It's like basically going through the washing machine. <laughs> or I was at the Atlantic Ocean last weekend and at Wrightsville Beach and the the tide was really strong and I, of course I wanted to get in the water but man I got pounded <laughs> right away and you know stripped my sunglasses off my head and all the rest of it. it was fantastic but it was like a full body you know baptism and that is how I feel when I read Peter Kingsley Continuing on, this book is nothing less than a purposefully crafted labyrinth, immersed waters of dark memory and laid out to trap the mind of the intrigued who proceeds past the warning on the first page that, quote, if you want to keep a grip on what you think you already know, you'll have to dismiss what I say, end quote. So let us fill our lungs with the world's sweet air as we know it for what may be a final time and dive right in. The first thing that one might notice when beginning this book, and an irritating one at that, especially for scholars, is that it speaks of Permenides' fragmentary poem on nature, but it never reproduces the fragment in its entirety. Instead, the stanzas are metered out a line or two at a time, in keeping with Kingsley's discourse on them, which flows between them like a bubbling stream. This seems to be done intentionally for effect, to gradually unfold the poem as the emotive discourse requires, using its lines as markers down the ever-turning oxbows through which Peter Kingsley is steering us. This structure could be interpreted initially as scholastic oversight, but I don't think this is, because except in general terms, he doesn't refer to the work of other scholars at all. He simply states repeatedly throughout the book that the traditional focus on fragment 8 the first historical mention of the structure of logical thought, without considering it in context with the rest of the poem, is an oversight, which has led to serious misinterpretations of Parmenides' overall message. 
Beyond this type of criticism, which isn't accompanied by any specific citations of other academic findings, Kingsley is not putting the text to scholastic analysis at all. He is instead opening for us the worlds of his own mental journey and his own charged heart as he unfolds the meaning of the poem through his concentrated intent to know, seeming less like a modern researcher of ancient philosophy and much more like an old-time alchemist, bent over a copy of the Emerald Tablet of Hermes, examining it closely with every aspect of his being until the point of knowledge comes when he himself has evolved into a living, breathing example of what lay hidden in the text of his endeavor. This may sound like a poetic exaggeration of his struggles with the poem, but it is not, as he may be clearly seen when reading through the book and noting the significance Kingsley attaches to the word metis, which is constantly referred to throughout. Quote, metis was the Greek term for cunning, skillfulness, practical intelligence, and especially for trickery. It was what could make humans, at the most basic and down-to-earth level, equal to the gods. It meant a particular kind of awareness that always manages to stay focused on the whole, on the lookout for hints, however subtle, for guidance in whatever form it happens to take, for signs of the route to follow, however quickly they might appear or disappear." It was with Metis that Kingsley must have struggled through solitary years using his vast background in scholarship and his budding intuitive insight to gain his conclusions from this ancient epigraphic fragment. And it is with Metis that he builds swells of strong argument meant to subtly and constantly erode the foundations on which to him were erroneously built the towers of Western thought. His argument is persuasive and amply serves to implant these conclusions into the minds of those capable of following him down these rivers from which they cannot return totally unchanged, unless, of course, they just dismiss his argument entirely. The problem in this lays in the fact that Kingsley was heralded as an innovative scholar and antiquities expert until he recently made this stand— his is a voice not easily dismissed. In his thesis, he explains how On Nature, far from being a fanciful lyric that sings an epic myth of a trip to the underworld to meet a goddess, in which the only real gem of wisdom contained is a few lines dedicated to the value of logical thought, is instead a manual containing guidelines on awakening from the dream sleep of our own making, so that we can view the world and our place in it for what it is. Kingsley presents this fragmentary poem as an initiation document written by a priest of Apollo Oleus, the god who destroys and makes whole, and explains, quote, to be initiated into such a line demanded total commitment, meant being introduced into a new family, starting one's life over again. Pausing here again. Does that sound like this third category of the I am? I think so. Continuing on, the meat of the argument is as follows, quote, There is only one reality, the one all around us really to understand that we are trapped, 
held fast in bonds that there is nowhere else to go, no possibility of transcendence is devastating. It knocks the bottom out of everything we once knew. There is nothing else to look forward to. The endless search is over. He then goes on to qualify this initially shocking and desperate revelation as a good thing, something that has the potential to liberate and to empower by stating, quote, Our greatest problem as humans is that we are at the mercy of reality. We keep getting lost inside it, have forgotten how to finish what has been started, how to link the beginning to the end. But it only takes the slightest shift in consciousness, the subtlest movement of awareness, and instead of being bound and helpless, we are binding the binder We have completed the circle inside and outside ourselves. Then the bonds and boundaries of existence are not in some far-off place anymore at the illusory edges of the cosmos. They are wherever we happen to be. And we are absolutely free, not because we are free from something, but because we contain everything, every perception and thought inside ourselves. This is the experience of utter stillness, more exquisite, more full than anything under the sun. That is so powerful. The second part of the book is a similar description of the extant writing of Parmenides' near-contemporary Empedocles, which Kingsley analyzes in the same vein of which he reaches the same conclusion. Empedocles' poem to his disciple, Pausanias, was an initiatory treatise written as a guide for the younger man's entry into the ranks of adeptship. Kingsley explains that in the opening address, Empedocles underlined that the poem was of an esoteric nature, quote, its teaching is only for the rare individual who has the capacity to approach it rightly, who is ready to make the necessary effort, is desperate enough to be willing to be changed by it. Others can waste their time as they choose, yet not aware that they are nothing but those rare individuals in disguise. Like I said, we are all, (laughs) we are all awakening to the divinity of ourselves. We're just at different moments in that. Continuing, in effect, he is stating that all men and women will eventually reach the stage in which its teaching will have value and that they too will become transformed and awakened to the realization of what the world is and what their place is in it. Then he goes on to lay out his multi-layered and complex proof, much of which dealing with the fact that a good portion of what Empedocles wrote is opposite of what he really meant because he was using the ancient literary device of reflection, common at the time, a device in which the author states exactly what he doesn't mean. So again, here we have that trickster nature, that hiding personality number two sometimes in what one is saying, um, turning things on their heads so that the real wisdom can be awakened in whoever's reading or listening. So continuing on, at the end of this involved study, he concludes that the weight of Empedocles' teaching is very much in keeping with that of Parmenides and that the key to discover the true nature of reality lies in metis in remaining still in thought, 
while yet maintaining full awareness of the world around you, which is a technique basic to most genuinely transformative practices, both ancient and modern. The cosmology described by Kingsley as what was meant by Empedocles is strikingly similar to the perennial philosophy discussed by Huxley and elaborated in great detail by Manley P. Hall in his Secret Teachings of All Ages. Empedocles states, quote, in the whole of existence, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that is not divine. Kingsley then shows him describing the cosmos as a duality of a one and of many in which all creation springs from a primordial source to which it eventually returns. This theme is common to many of the modern mysteries, including Rosicrucianism, as described by Paul Foster Case in The True and Invisible Rosicrucian Order, the Kabbalah, as described in varied works such as those of Kaplan and Fortune, Christian Hermeticism, as detailed by Valentine Tomberg in Meditations on the Tarot, in modern Gnosticism as described in Gnosis of the Cosmic Christ by Malachi, and most notably as attested to by the Golden Sufi Center, which published this book. This does not even take into account obvious parallels to Eastern religions. In fact, all of these mystic paths contain certain basic tenets described by Kingsley as being the true meaning of Parmenides and Empedocles' initiatory poems. One, all that is and was and will ever be is eternal and in the here and now. Two, the intelligence behind all things is wholly resident within each of us and equally resident in all other things, making each of us a virtual cosmos encompassing all else. 3. Awakening to this fact frees us from the delusion of normal living and enables us to begin walking a path of return within ourselves toward true self-knowledge. 4. The realization of the oneness of all being is empowering and raises our capacity for compassion to encompass all within the infinite bounds of our beingness. It might seem from the above that I am marginalizing Kingsley's findings and showing them to be nothing more than yet another entry in a growing lineup of largely marginalized mystical teachings, but this is absolutely not the case, and in fact, it is because of this that Kingsley's book begins to weigh heavy with the potential of tipping the balance to the point of enabling a cultural shift which has been waiting silent in the wings for at least 2,000 years. I am speaking of a re-evaluation of philosophy based on serious discourse and further discovery relative to the verity and merit of this work, which could one day lead to a reconciliation between philosophy and religion, bringing them back full circle to where Kingsley claims they were when Permetides and Empedocles first put Calamos to papyrus. This, of course, is a question for scholars of philosophy, philologists, and now perhaps for theologians engaged in pre-Socratic research. A line has been clearly drawn in these ancient sands. One can only hope that this challenge will be taken and met with a heavy onslaught of objective consideration and detailed study. Reality seems important both because an eminent scholar had the courage to write it and because of the stir that it is causing in the academic world. 
Further, though extremely dense, it is accessible to the general public, which also weighs in to fuel this discussion. I encourage all of those interested in metaphysics and mysticism to read it, because it delves down to the taproots of many of these belief systems. And I encourage all those interested in societal change to consider giving it a read as well. If it were to become as popular as some other recent journeys into metaphysics and the arcane, it could conceivably change the way that Western culture views itself and hence the world. That's an incredible summary in my estimation. This is important work that we're delving into. I think the cultural and current moment implications for our world and how we can contribute in a, in a truly meaningful way to all the chaos and change and tectonic plates shifting. My intention in sharing this is, is to help us all keep waking up and to find meaningful ways to navigate right now, ways that truly assist what's unfolding So with that, thank you for being here. Join me for part two of this discussion and we'll keep pulling back the layers and and moving into the mystery together. And until next time, take good care.
Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying this podcast, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if my work is nourishing your heart and imagination, consider supporting the Apothecary Podcast. Just follow the links to make a contribution. And for the full scope of my projects and offerings, including my weekly newsletter, visit LoriGreen.net.